Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If you've bought anything from food to clothes to gas of late, you've probably noticed that prices are going up. It's a tough bill to swallow for many taxpayers, especially if they're also going to owe taxes this year. And yes, I said bill, not pill. To talk about the impact of inflation on your tax bill, along with some tax strategies, I've invited Tim Spies back to the show. Tim is the CPA and partner of Eisner Ampers Personal Wealth Group. Tim, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. So right now, folks are definitely watching their wallets a little more than normal. Um, There was a recent report that indicated that inflation has increased the cost of living for most families about $276 a month, which really adds up. So this is something that people are thinking about right now, especially folks who might be in the position to have to write checks to IRS. And I will confess that is uh, typically me every year. So what are you seeing in this space and what kind of advice are you giving to your clients? Well, everything you just said is very true. And there's a lot of reasons for it, as you know, and all your, all your listeners know. Costs have gone up because of uh, supply chain issues, labor shortages, some of it's inflation-driven. Interest rates remain low, which kind of countered the preceding topics I just mentioned. And housing costs, you know, rentals have gone up in certain areas, but then again, interest rates have gone down if you're in the market to purchase. So it's a very, I could say, confusing, frustrating, and it, it has caused people to pause, hopefully, and look at their own personal finances and not just uh, how they're spending, which is very important, but also how they're investing. Because despite everything I just said, you do want to be investing in savings for your future, for your family. You want to be paying attention to now the more detailed areas such as 401k plans and are you contributing to your health savings account? And all those things that don't necessarily pop up to the top of the list, but there's real, real savings and abilities uh, to build assets when you start, you know, digging down deeper. Which I would say in in closing on this particular question, if you're able to engage with a financial advisor or a CPA that also does not only tax but also more holistic financial planning, and I'm talking about even advice regarding insurance, life insurance, uh, how to title assets explaining to you employee benefit plan offerings, that would be really a very good investment of time. And though there'll be a fee involved, you can find uh, by doing uh, either talking to friends or relations or doing some research, you can find some very reasonably priced and very talented advisors that can help you. And that leads into, at the same time, now that it's uh, it's, uh, past mid-February, getting ready for April 15th. So in my mind, everything I just mentioned and anyone's concerns around some of these topics can start to be addressed now in conjunction with your tax planning for this year, 2022, and also addressing your tax filing requirements for 2021. We do this all the time with our largest clients right down to really our entire client base. These are the discussions. They're different discussions for everyone, mm-hmm. but we, we purposely have these discussions because 
everything's really on the table. I mean, we're looking at everything right now with our clients, or even a, even a state estate plans and healthcare coverages. So yeah, actually, I have two questions. One is a more general question, which is that what you just described is something that we're seeing more of in the tax planning space. I think for a very long time, it was just let's look at last year's 1040 and see what's different this year. Is that something that you have done a long time in your practice? Or is that something that's evolving with you as well? Because this is something that I do think is new for a lot of people. It's something that I personally have done. I've been in the, I will say, uh, it's, it's interesting if I look back at my career, I've really, I really had the ability to focus on a lot of different areas of taxation, everything from corporate trust and estates, M&A. Now for the past years, it's been focused on family offices, individuals, executive compensation, risk management, taxation, of course, I still get involved in corporate taxation. So I have a, I have a very diverse background. And to me, that's extremely helpful. First, mm-hmm. I, enjoy, I enjoy it greatly. And secondly, I think that I'm able to provide a lot more insights, observations, advice on all the areas I just, I just spoke about. Because doing effective tax planning, and I could even say a income tax filing, there's a lot more to it than just meeting your IRS or state filing requirements. It's really a year-round endeavor for all the reasons I mentioned. Are you saving enough? Are you maximizing your 401k plan? Uh, for any of your listeners that are also uh, focused on college funding, for our clients that, that have uh, assets, and by the way, everyone should have a will, but yes. <laughs> those that are above the lifetime exemptions you know, the federal lifetime exemptions now went up in 2022 to just over $12 million to 12.06. But everyone should have an estate plan. I mean, regardless whether you're, you're at $12 million or $100,000 or $2 million, you should have a will. You should have made uh, and should make arrangements for your children descendants. What if you have a special needs child? What if you have elderly parents? They're just, this is why I believe being holistic as a tax advisor, is one of the great things I, I truly enjoy about what I do. And it's also phenomenally interesting. And the best part, the best part is you're truly adding value to help people on a very broad area of topics and uniquely suited to what they need, even doing something as fundamental as a cash flow model. And by the way, we do this a lot of these exercises and reviews we're doing for our most affluent clients. Cash flows are cash flows, whether yes. you're someone with a significant balance sheet and a complicated balance sheet or not. And these are issues I can assure you everyone is thinking about in our client base in different ways. And, and lastly, I'll end by saying, or including any businesses that you're involved in or your, your listeners are involved in, that gets in consideration as well. And uh, I'll just end, I, I think I, I can end here with saying investment portfolio reviews, we do that as well, which we're gonna, we'll probably talk about during this call because things like 401k, 401k contributions, charitable giving, charitable gift annuities, all kinds of things, ways to both benefit charity, obtain tax deductions, but build assets for families. All of this, all of this gets considered. And this is actually one of my favorite times of year because uh, while we're working with our clients very closely all year round on various matters, it's, it goes well beyond tax return filings. 
it's planning and we do it all year round. But this is really the, how do I call this? It's almost like the spring training for the year, so to speak. You know, everyone nice. shows up. Everyone shows I'm, I'm up. I'm a baseball camp. fan, so I appreciate that analogy. <laughs> it goes like this. Everybody shows up at camp, right? And you're getting ready for the season and you're looking at the positions and you probably have some new personnel on the team and you have veterans and everyone has their skill set. But now, now you've got to look at things holistically as a team. And you look at the team as perhaps a taxpayer or a client or a business and you say, all right, what does this team, taxpayer, client, business, what does it need to be successful? Who's our, who's our personnel? Who are we going to bring to this, this activity that's going to give us the best advice for the best lineup? It can be construed as very similar to tax planning for individuals, families, corporations, trusts, whatever it might be. You want a team? You want to know what the objectives are. You want to find out what your best ideas are. You want to find out where your strengths are. You want to find out where your weaknesses are. And then you want to remedy and congeal all those so you have a winning season. This is not the best example, perhaps, but it makes sense. Because once you come out of April and go into May, you should have already done that in the first few months of the year. If you've done that in the first few months of the year, then the rest of the, the, rest of the year, May going through December is all about attaining goals, obtaining objectives, implementing what you said you were going to do, mm-hmm. and then monitoring it. So that's, that's a view on how this can work. And I couldn't agree more. I actually, um, my listeners know that I started out in the estate planning space. That was my, uh, my first gig was I audited returns with IRS in an internship in the, audit, in the estates department. And uh, went into estate planning for high net worth individuals. And over time, I kind of these same things that you were talking about, like I started noticing we had clients that weren't compliant with their normal tax filings that had nothing to do, you know, on paper. It was separate from the estate planning, but it was still a problem that needed to be addressed or someone received an inheritance. And then the next question was, what do I do with this? Like, what's the best plan for that? And so my practice as well, I've um, actually worked in a lot of different areas because it was the kind of thing where you start noticing, I use the word holistic, which I love, that everything's not siloed. It's not, you don't just do your will and put it in a drawer and never look at it again, right? And you don't just set up your 401k the first day at the new gig and uh, never look at it again. In fact, uh, my husband and I were just talking about that the other day because we had a change. He uh, he moved over to a new job. And as a result, we had to um, juggle some insurance expenses. And I realized that I have more room now in my paycheck now that he uh, he's doing health care. So, you know, let's add another contribution on retirement. Like that kind of discussion needs to happen all of the time. It shouldn't just happen once every few years. So I love this idea of doing it now when you're thinking about money and you're thinking about taxes. And then um, I also love that you mentioned implementing goals, because I think sometimes, especially on the planning side, it feels very daunting and your goals feel so far away, right? Like it feels like that's retirement. Maybe that's your goal. So you're thinking, oh, that's not for another 20 years. I love the idea that you mentioned attaining goals throughout the year, because I do think taxpayers need to be able to check off a to-do list and see by December that they've done something. Your comments are very pressing because it, it just causes me to continue. And I would, I would think, my view is this on this, on this, on this uh, discussion, this discussion today. We can go over facts, which we will, about things like what's your 401k contribution limit this year? 
How much can you contribute to your healthcare spending account? All the what I would call uh, inside detail matters. And those are all very important. And we do that. We, of course, do that because mm-hmm. we're trying to help. We're trying to help persons arrange their financial affairs. But we also look at portfolio allocations, for example. And we're also looking at considering someone's age, family balance sheet, all other facts. We're, we're trying to build out a financial model forecast that, that we work on with our clients. And these could be clients that could be managing hedge funds, and, and they have their own objectives, and they have their own business structures. The process is, is similar. And by adopting this model that, that we've designed, it's very thorough, very comprehensive. There are some things that will not apply to party A compared to party B, but it's the same process. And we tailor it to uh, each one of our relationships and it, it does work. And then being proactive with our clients, other advisors. So many of our clients, most all, most all, not everyone, have an estate and gift counsel. If they don't, we help them, we help them find one. Mm-hmm. Insurance, the same thing. And you know, I mentioned again, having that roster of professionals uh, working for you if you're a client and you have, you have certain needs, you know, you can get that when you're working with an advisor or advisors, plural, that are able to provide that. And it's also helpful that someone on the advisory team acts as the lead. I don't want to use the term quarterback. That's, you know, quietly maybe overused, right. <laughs> but you do need, need a lead that's going to make sure that all the, this is not about overwhelming a relationship. This is not about overwhelming a client. It's, it's also not about being too helpful so that it becomes, it can become unmanageable. It's about having something done in a very synchronized way where you have this collection of, of specialists that are led by a, a lead advisor. That's how they do their best work. We do this with healthcare all the time, right? Like you have your GP who you go to and you have a problem. And if he doesn't know the answer or or he or she doesn't know the answer, or if it's something that is, a, you know, requires a specialist, then that's where they send you. And that works really well. And then they consult. That specialist consults back with your GP. I think that's the way that finances, we should run our financial health as well. You know, there, as you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of joke about a quarterback, but that idea that there should be somebody who's kind of central and then you work with the people that you need to work with for whatever it is, you know, is it your endocrinologist, you know, the, or your estate planner? It's the same kind of idea. I think it's really, I think it's very sensible. And I will tell you with many of the investment firms that we work with, many of the insurance professionals that we work with, many of the trust and estate plan, planning professionals that we work, and there are many others. We work with them in the same way, and I'm not going to say they adopt a similar model, but if they're working with us and us with them, we are uh, applying this model across the entire cohort group of clients, excuse me, of advisors advising our clients, right? Mm -hmm. Because we also get invited to advise clients of other firms. And so we like to use the model that we use if one that is similar this is all about holistic advice. That, that's really at the core of what it is. You don't want to miss anything. You right. don't want to miss anything. So here we are. April 15 is getting closer. By the way, it's uh, April 18, I think, this year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Getting closer and closer. Believe me, I know this. I've been doing this a long time. 
people are going to be getting anxious or they're going to be calling and they're going to be saying, look, you know, uh, we're gathering our information and we need to see you. And we have portals that clients can use to drop their documents into. And then we're, of course, working with the advisors to accelerate things. We try to keep the client in a very good place whereby they are not the ones coordinating and obtaining all of this information. We view it as our job, part of our service offering, to step into that breach and accumulate all information needed. We, we really want to have our clients be in a least stressful circumstance as possible because right. we work with all their advisors mm-hmm. and we can get access to it. And with technology, it's a lot easier and everything's passcode protected. And you start to think about that. You say, well, gee, I've got to send this document to someone. That shouldn't exist. When you have a lead advisor, by the way, it could be the attorney, the CPA, uh, the investment advisor. doesn't matter who the team leader is. There should be a team leader because you want your, you want your relationship to have a great experience during a stressful time with new legislation, <laughs> right. always new legislation. Sure. And by the way, at the state level as well. So I'm giving you a bit of a process and I hope it's helpful because I know you probably have more specific questions about estate planning techniques and, and other things, which we can certainly talk about. And I've, I've prepared a list of uh, what I would call top items as well to consider over the next, not just the next couple of two months, two months less, three days to filing, but for the rest of the year, actually for the next multiple years. Right. This is a long, a tax filing in and of itself should be a long-term step in a process that covers multiple years. Well, let's dive into some of this documentation because I do think that that is one of the things that is, as you mentioned, can be confusing for taxpayers. When you're looking at documentation, I think we've become very used to the idea that we gather up our Forms W-2 and 1099 and 1098, and we ship those off to our tax preparer. What other kinds of documentation should taxpayers be looking at for these long-term plans? Understanding that it's, you know, on some level, facts and circumstance specific, but like, What kind of pieces, when we talk about a holistic approach, should folks have access to or should they know about? Because I think that's one of the questions that I see from taxpayers is they don't even know where to start because they don't know what they're supposed to have or what they're looking at when they do have it. Right. And that's a great question. So that question, and by the way, that can cause a lot of anxiety, right? Yes. For the client is they visit with to use an example, it could have been their investment advisor or their T trust and estate attorney, but let's say it's us because we have probably of all the advisors that we work with, we're the ones that are in touch with clients the most, the most frequently throughout the year. I'm, I'm very confident in that. And that doesn't mean it's a good or bad thing. It just is the way it is. I mentioned at the very beginning of our interaction today that even with our longstanding clients, they don't have to be a new client. We're doing it right now. We're going back again. And we did it pre-year end. We were doing this in November and December. We're going back to all the advisors and we're saying, John or Jane or the Smith family or the Roberts family or whoever it is, we're visiting with them. Let's go back, pull the documentation we discussed in in, uh, July or December regarding insurance coverage in place. Where do we stand on estimated K-1s if they're in investment partnerships? 
uh, let's sure make sure we have the most recent 401k plan balances. Now, we're not going to necessarily do anything with some of these documents for a 2021 tax filing, but to continue to the flow that so much will keep us informed as to what's occurring, that's very important. I mean, we have many clients that are going to start to have to take, for example, required minimum distributions, for example, mm-hmm. because of attaining certain ages. Or we have, we have clients that are over age 50 and they know that they can contribute additional monies into 401k plans. We have to know about what are those, what, what's the status of these plans? So we're doing, we're doing a lot of work with the other advisors that oftentimes our clients, they're aware of it, but they may not always be aware of it. They don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't see it. And, you know, they don't have to see it. They are expecting us, though, to know these things. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, a high, it's a high bar. Right. As our clients are viewing us to have a very strong command of all their financial affairs. And I believe they've already inferred and intuited that for us to be good tax advisors, we do need all that information. So we've, we've been doing this in the personal wealth advisory practice at Eisner Amper LLP. That's how we do it. And I'm not saying no one else does. I'm just saying we have we have a process. You know, the the interactions with the other advisors is critical because we need we need to know what's going on. So we are talk. Sometimes there'll be meetings with the trust and estate attorneys. Matter of fact, uh, I was working on a significant project the past three months, and we were we were working with the trust and estate attorney every day, weekends. Oh yeah, we're doing it in part because we want to be helpful because we had a role in this, in planning and execution. We also want to make sure everything's going well. That doesn't mean that the, the law firm, isn't, that it's not going well, <laughs> but it's the power of two brains, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and the third brain being the client. So I find that when you do that, first, you can, you can accelerate a process. In this particular matter I'm talking about, I was on the phone yesterday with the estate attorney, and I'm going to be speaking with the client again today. Where are we? Is everything done? Have we done these certain things? What are the next steps? Are we speaking to the family next week? Uh, They need to understand what's happening. It's kind of the soft side, right? Especially with families, because we advise many families. Family members do care what other family members are doing when they're putting together their estate plan. (laughs) Trust me, again, started out in that that area. So yeah, very definitely. You've got to be very sensitive to that. And you've got to be helpful and accommodating while also respecting the, to some extent, if there's a desire for certain privacy, that has to be respected as well. Mm -hmm. But by going on a posture that says, look, advisory services, we need to know this. And we say this to the family because we want to help all of you. We're not just working for a single person. And oftentimes a single person might might think that we are, but then we also have to point out that we're designing a family plan here. It's not something in a box and we can eliminate any risks of disappointment, misinformation five years from now. Oh, I thought X was going to happen. Why is Y happening? Right. You don't want that. You you don't want persons uh, questioning other persons. You you just want to be transparent. And sure. if you're given, by the way, if you're given instructions otherwise, in a proper sense, that's okay too. So then we take all these techniques, and I've written down 15 ideas here for 2022, mm-hmm. and we we apply these as well. But these 15 ideas 
there are 15 ideas and only 10 might be relevant in a particular fact pattern. Or maybe, maybe 15 are, maybe three are. Right. Well, since you mentioned estates on your list, I'm sure you've got charitable contributions because as you were talking through family estate planning, that is something that Absolutely. I've seen a lot of. So I know that charitable contributions, that's, I think, an example of when you were mentioning earlier in the program that, you know, some of some techniques apply to the tippy top as well as ordinary taxpayers. And I think this is one of them. So what should taxpayers look for or understand about, let's say, charitable giving? Because I do think that that's something where, especially since we mentioned that some families are struggling right now, it's something that I think we're all kind of looking at and how can we help? Right. So many of our relationships have established formal family foundations where they they make a contribution as a family, maybe it's a single family member, mm-hmm. and they fund their own foundation. And the first thing they do is they apply for exempt status that they have a charitable purpose. And they'll call it the, uh, the Smith Family Foundation. Mm-hmm. And they'll adopt a governance board comprised of family members and maybe uh, some outside professionals. And they make, they make contributions to it every year on a tax-deductible basis. And that foundation has a, has, a, has a mission on behalf of the family. And it could be education, healthcare, something else, autism, something else. That's, that's one way. I'm using charitable giving as an example. Charitable giving also could be done more on a, um, a setup mechanism as a donor-advised fund, with, which you could implement with your present financial institution. Perhaps one of the investment firms uh, someone might be working with or their bank sometimes can be quite as effective as setting up your own private foundation where you have to get your own IRS determination letter that the IRS says you are a valid 501c3. Donor advised funds came into play probably, and I'm probably being too early on this, the, the late 1990s, they started and then they got more prevalent into the early 2000s. They're very popular now, but that's an example. For instance, a family is philanthropic. They want to know whom, what kind of beneficiaries, when, and how much they want to make contributions to. Donor advised fund could be a very good vehicle. Maybe it's more suitable. They have a formal private foundation, but that's just one example. And the most time spent is probably focused on three areas. What's the, what's the charitable purpose of this entity? I'll just call it an entity. It could be a foundation or a fund. Uh, who, who are our beneficiaries going to be? And how do we define those? And is everyone in the family okay with that? I mean, are these, are these congruent charities? And then you get to the funding component. And then oftentimes, many of our relationships will get involved in these donee organizations, you know, the ones that they're providing funds to. Same process as a private foundation. Not very different. The administration of a donor advised fund could be could be easier, right? Than the administration of a private foundation, which you which you probably know from your days of of, of practicing. So that's just that's just one example. Optimally, similarly, you would do that with an estate plan. Right. That's a very different very different process, but in theory, that could be a very very similar process. And that's actually what I was going to add is the another place where I tend to see charitable planning become tied to something else is in retirement as well. When people start looking at ways that they can use their retirement funds or retirement planning to accomplish a charitable goal. Right. 
Well, I just, I should mention this again, but 401k contributions this year, I mean, there's catch-up provisions. If you're over 50, you can put in another $6,500. The maximum limit is $20,500. I mentioned that. That's just for a that's just for a 401k plan. So now you're looking at potentially $27,000 if you're over 50 years old. I would say any of your listeners who are younger, starting a 401k plan with whatever you can afford to do is a phenomenal idea. It's a longer period of time that it will accumulate for. If you're 45 years old and under today's standards, if someone's retiring at 45 or 65, who knows, maybe at 70, people are living longer. By the way, this is a It's a whole other area that I talk about, and that is, I mentioned it earlier, looking at birth rates, interest rates, inflation, Mm -hmm. supply chains, that gets put into my analyses uh, frequently. But the point is, going back to this idea of just a 401k plan, the earlier you start at something, it makes sense the more more successful you could be in asset accumulation, right? So, So that makes sense. And so when we're talking with families again, we're trying to educate the younger generation about that. Oh, yeah. No, my my uh, daughter has her first job. She's in college. She has her first job. And I was excited, like proud mom moment when she asked me how to open a Roth IRA. Someone had mentioned that at school and she's like, I've heard you talk about it. So I was so excited that that, that was where her mind went, you know, like, right. how yeah, can yeah. I put this away and save it? And that was, um, I think when you talk about educating younger generations, it doesn't always have to be a huge step. Sometimes it can be a little step. We have uh, an annual family office summit, which we invite relationships and clients to, where we, we talk about family strategies, holistic, integrated, all-in family members strategies. Many of the things I just mentioned is covered by that, including if they're, if they're operating a business enterprise or they're running a family investment fund. All these topics come up. So the discussions you're having with your daughter or others in your family, it's along the same lines of what, of what we're, we're talking about. I would say, so when you go down that trajectory, it's investments, it's who are your charities going to be? Has the family selected charities? Who are they going to fund? Then you can get into the, when you're now addressing that, because oftentimes those are the types of activities that really congeal family members to a common family objective. Very helpful. And there's a very good way to keep the family talking and engaged on what's important to them, attendant to their principles and their objectives, even where they, they might have separate business offerings. But the other items, estate plan design, using life insurance and estate plan designs, mm-hmm. irrevocable life insurance trusts, maxing out the uh, lifetime exemption, which I just mentioned has gone up in 2022, using life insurance not as just a, a death benefit asset creator, but also that could be a funding mechanism for everything from a foundation to a trust to other matters. Insurance insurance proceeds are used for a lot of different things. It's, it's not necessarily... You know, the insurance industry was designed to create life insurance policies that upon the passing of a senior family member, his or her income going forward that would be gone upon passing is right. replaced by life insurance proceeds. That was the original concept, very simple. But it's now expanded well beyond that into using life insurance as funding vehicles for other purposes. Why? 
because some families do not necessarily need for continuing lifestyle expenditure. They may not need the life insurance, but they might want it to fund a charitable legacy or to fund a family trust. Life insurance, I also think, is one of the pieces, uh, one of the assets that, again, kind of going to, you mentioned not everyone needs income replacement, but it is a significant asset for a lot of folks. When I look at estate yes. plans, especially in the middle class, the two things that typically ju- jump out at me are homes and life insurance, because that is a, a significant source of whether it's income or wealth building for families. And I think that that sometimes also gets lost around tax season, right? Like that is something you should be looking at. How much do I have? Do I need all of this? Do I need more? Is it is it invested the right way? Because that's another, you know, we're, we're used to term, right? Because <laughs> that was a what everybody used to buy, but not everybody has a term policy. Right. That's right. And term policies are great. I mean, they're not expensive, but they generally have a lapse period and they're at a certain age. And there are, are new offerings being invented every day. Mm-hmm. So we have an insurance advisory group within our firm. We also have an investment advisory group within our firm that I am a member of. I'm, I'm, I'm also a registered investment advisor. So I'm properly uh, designated and licensed, and we we bring all of this we bring all of this to our clients. It's all available, and we introduce it where it's appropriate. We monitor portfolio. You mentioned it, and the and the reason I mentioned it as well. But I love that you brought it up in the realm of you know that might be charitable planning, it might be estate planning, it could be something else. Because I do think that a big theme of this discussion actually is how much one thing can touch on another. And I and I do think, again, we're so used to siloing things that sometimes we don't see how they can interact. But you know, maybe you don't need life insurance for income replacement, but it does work for charitable planning or something else. Um, I think investments are very much the same way. Like when you look at portfolios and you you look at, you know, how much do I need to live? And then how much do I need to retire? Like there's lots of different components. It shouldn't all just be, did it go up or down? And I think that's what we tend to look at, especially at tax season, right? We're looking at how much did it go up or down? That's exactly right. So the, as I mentioned at the very big beginning of the call, already started, we're already speaking to clients starting in late January around 2021 data accumulation, and then all these discussions are happening simultaneously. Let's talk about the rest of the year. By the way, this is a big deal. It's going to sound very simple. Giving your relationships, clients, adequate time to react to a due date. Mm -hmm. We try very hard not to produce advice the day before or three days before. You know, it used to be we would follow and still try to do a 10-day rule where we would have information ready to go 10 days before a deadline. I will tell you that even with the ability of electronic transmission of, of information, it's a challenge, but we certainly don't want to be doing this two days before. Five days before can usually accommodate most person's needs to get their financial house ready, but we're talking with them about it throughout the process because you don't want to be surprising someone with a large payment due two days before with no previous knowledge. That's why this process I'm describing where we commence right now, we're obtaining information now, last week, 
we start from the end and we say, to be able to communicate good advice that someone can act on and be prepared for on April 18, we really need to have everything to them by, say, April 12. Mm-hmm. So you move in reverse. It's, 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 it makes sense. And so therefore, you're trying to accomplish certain fact gathering and decisions in advance of that. It, it's actually a very simple work plan. Where it gets caught up is when you're, you're not receiving information timely from third parties. By the way, I'm not blaming third parties. They have partnerships or funds or they're, they're trying to get their, their numbers together as well. There's very large investment firms that we work with. They have portal loadings. We can go onto the portal and we can obtain that. Sometimes it's timely. It's there by hypothetically April 1. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's late. But you know, that's okay because we're really good at working with our with our relationships about the use of estimates that we can, for example, making a payment with an extension due April 18 of 2022 that will include a first quarter payment. Why would one do that? Someone uh, commingle the payment with the extension. Well, that's because if for some reason information was not available for the extension amount, you simply make an additional payment combined with the extension for the first quarter. And therefore, that payment counts as a first quarter, excuse me, as an extension payment. Mm -hmm. And also, you can use those monies simultaneously when there's more clarity around how to allocate that single payment to the extension or the first quarter. The fact fact is, it's paid in. It's not two separate payments. So we employ that technique very often. And I was actually struck by, it's just interesting to hear you talk about the 10-day rule and giving clients lots of time because and we're kind of working backwards. I know on your your list of strategies, one of the things that you had said about looking at portfolio reviews, you had talked about looking at your portfolio in quarter one and not quarter four. I assume that that helps you with the kind of thing that you're mentioning now, this idea that you want to have lots of time to get things done. Right. But we're also looking at, so second quarter estimated tax payments are, are due June 15th. We're looking at everything again. So by May 31, we're looking at May 31 numbers because cumulative estimated tax payments for June 15 is based upon income earned through that date in a particular year. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at that. And it's a whole process. I mean, it's a whole synchronized process. And oftentimes we're not able to get the information timely. So we have to use estimates. That's fine. We're obviously working to the client's benefit, not their detriment. Sometimes there are prepayments because you want to cover a a June 15 payment. You don't want to be short. All that means is if you paid an extra amount, it's going to get rolled in toward 915. I mean, it's, it's, it's doing that or being short, right? So we then get to settle up at the time a tax filing is due. Presently, that would be October 15th. So what I'm trying to portray to you is a, a sequence of events and how we manage making sure we're not having a relationship overpay, but making sure that they might be prepaying so that there's no penalty imposition. Right. Because the the money has to be with the US government in any event. And what you don't want to do is to be short and potentially inflict a penalty of underpayment. What you'd rather want to be, in my mind, and we talk to clients about this all the time, and sometimes we diverge, but to have enough money paid in so that you avoid any underpayment penalty 
but you have an excess that goes to the subsequent quarter. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is we talk to clients about this all the time. Some clients will want us to do it a different way. That's fine. That's perfectly fine. So we do we do bring kind of a we do we bring a thoughtful process to this that we can change. It's very flexible and it's all fact based and it works. I mean, it it seems to work. We try and to I, be as we try to be as accurate as we can based on the information we have. And I think what my listeners, they tend to be kind of a mix of uh, practitioners and taxpayers, I'm hopeful will take from this conversation is that there's a lot of strategies that are available and there's a lot of opportunities to engage throughout the year and not just April 14, right? Or this year, April 17. <laughs> yeah, I would venture, I, I don't know the, uh, the composition of everyone who might be listening to this, whether it's today or next week or next year. I am sure that the majority of, if not all, of any of your, any professionals that are on this call, first, I would hope that they appreciate and perhaps even agree with some of the things I'm saying and what some of the challenges are and what some of the ideas are. But I'm also sure that they're, they're already aware of it. You know, they're highly qualified. They have clients that they deal with differently, but to get to the same objective, because I know many CPAs, financial advisors, trust and estate attorneys. And we all we all generally follow a variation on a theme <clears throat> of the model I just discussed. Mm-hmm. Because you're using estimates. We know what happened in 2021 and we can prepare data based upon that. And, and, and that's because we're also doing very effective tax planning in 2021. And we simply repeat that same process for 2022. And our clients are involved in this. So we're not we're, this is not a black box exercise. You know, we're communicating with them. We're telling them what we advise. If they want to take a different tact, we take a different tact. However, only when it's to their benefit, right? And then we continue to, to look at all these other issues. What's going on with the estate plan? What's going on with your investment allocation? What are we doing to manage your tax liability payments throughout the year? Asking questions once again. Are there expected any unusual transactions this year that we should be thinking about? It's a, it's, it's a dialogue. I mean, it's a dialogue all throughout the year. And preparing documents, i.e. tax filings, is a part of that, but it is not the only thing. I would say it, it's a primary undertaking, but it's, it's no more important than all the planning because you, you can't get to a well-done, efficient, properly stated tax filing, optimizing tax benefits unless you've done all that pre-work in the prior 12 to nine months. Agreed. Yeah. It, just, it just doesn't happen. So you, you do need year-round planning. And our clients know that. They want it. They expect it. Some of them will, will be after us because we're not, we're, maybe they think we're not moving fast enough, which is fair. But um, most of our clients are uh, very complex. And um, by the way, use the firm for other services, such as... Uh, partnership advisory, fund advisory, uh, and other services. So we, we work with those teams as well. We're all a single team, even though we might be working on different aspects of a, of a client's uh, balance sheet. Right. Well, thanks for this. I think this has been really uh, helpful for not only taxpayers, but tax practitioners to think about what they need to think about year round instead of, again, just forking over those 1099s. So thanks very much. Um, before you go, we have a couple of get to know you questions that I want to run by you. I have read them. Yes. Oh, good, good. So, um, <laughs> so my first one is going to be: if you could have dinner with one person who's alive today, who would it be? 
this was the hardest question. Ah, so I'm glad I picked it. And I'm going to punt and come back to it. So go uh, if you want to go to any of your other questions first. Sure. So actually, <laughs> I think this one will fit in really well with our discussion, which is, should the tax filing season deadline be changed? And if so, to what date? Because since we've talked so much about deadlines, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, my thoughts of that have changed over the years. I, I think there's an argument to extend the tax filing deadline. Let's hypothetically, let's say one by one month, only because of the complicated nature, certainly since I began practicing, that now exists due to always pending legislation or new legislation, federal, and let's not forget the states. Mm -hmm. And also to actually prove my point, this has happened the past two tax years that due due dates were extended, Mm -hmm. primarily because of the stress and difficulty in getting timely tax information for third parties for people even being able to file their tax returns. Right. So if you look at that model, you could probably make an intuition that tax accumulation timeliness, we might have outgrown a 415 deadline. Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be 515. Now, the US Treasury might say, well, I don't know. That's you're now we're now extending our receipt of payments on a safe harbor basis by a month. But then the rebuttal could be, well, yes, maybe we do so, but after the first year, it won't matter anymore because you're getting something now a month later. But in the natural business cycle, is that really because now you're going to be getting estimated payments based by that information? So is it really impairing any government that an extension might be 30 days late when you're going to continue to see cash flow? Right. Maybe on maybe on different estimated tax payment dates. So it's certainly been difficult. April 15 of 2020, March 20 is when I personally uh, went into my own lockdown, March 20 of 20. Mm-hmm. April 15 was extended. I think it was twice. Then we came into the 2021 tax year. That was extended. New York extended because of Hurricane Ida. Pennsylvania too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The others, parts of New Jersey to a uh, extended due date. And so these things are going to happen. Now, flipping back the other way, would that cause people and maybe advisors to procrastinate? I don't know. Right. But I do think that talking about a 415 due date is is definitely something highly credible to speak about. And if you're also if you're also working with taxpayers that are on forms W2 and kind of automatic withholdings, I would argue it doesn't matter. I mean, you could easily extend the deadline. Uh, but with other taxpayers who are deferring income, accelerating deductions, and so forth, and I have statistics on all this, by the way, the where does the money come from, quote unquote, by income level? And it does get more complicated the more sophisticated a balance sheet or income statement looks like. So I have an open mind on this. And I also think selfishly it helps the profession because I think it helps us do a better job. I would agree with that. I think um, sometimes the rush, especially that that between pass throughs and <laughs> between right. pass throughs and and filing dates, is hard. So yeah, yeah. And the the ABA Tax Committee and the American Institute of CPAs and their Tax Committee and other states, they everyone's weighed in on this. This is not a new discussion. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. What's your favorite tax code section or reg? Uh, I have a couple of those. See, I love it when people have more than one. <laughs> I'm I'm going to say 501c3 
because that promotes giving to charitable organizations. How about that? Great. And then uh, finally, tax Twitter would want to know pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Oh, that was def- that was decisive. I, I don't know <laughs> what tax Twitter will do with that fact. But, uh, <laughs> They're keeping score. They're keeping- I've heard there's less flour required for waffle than mm-hmm. there is for pancake. And syrup might be the same. I don't know. So this is actually a U.S. economic question. I don't know. You know. Oh, that's funny. Sugar producers. I don't know. You should ask them. <laughs> I will. I will. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. If folks wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or the web, where would you send them? I have a LinkedIn box or portal, so I could be contacted there. So that might be very effective. Okay. And I'll be sure to put that link in the show notes. Thank you again for being here. This was terrific. All right. Great. Thank you for having me. I hope everyone enjoyed it and thought it was very useful or at least useful. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.